In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. David returns to his base in Ziklag, only to find it in ashes and his family and followers kidnapped by the Amalekites, the sworn enemies of God's people. David's men are devastated, and many of them blame him for their loss. David cries out to God and asks for guidance, and God tells him to pursue the raiders and promises him victory. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, June 9th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We're grateful to God and the Lutheran Heritage Foundation for its generous support of Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry that makes Lutheran resources available in different languages. You can find out more about their work of translating and publishing at lhfmissions.org. Well, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us explore the penultimate chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 30. It's the Reverend Hans Finney, pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Pastor, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. Thank you. Always nice to have you on. Uh, correct me, how do you pronounce your last name again? Is it Feeney? It's Feeney. Uh, it's Feeney. Feeney. Okay. Yeah. I always, you know, I've read it a bunch. Obviously, you're out there in the in the uh, ether in a lot of your writings right. and other things you do, and I've always read it differently than it is. So I apologize for that. No um, problem how are things going for you and your congregation this Pentecost time? Oh, they're going great. We're we are richly blessed by our Lord. Things are, are very peaceful uh, and joyous here at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church. So it's great. Oh, that's excellent. Well, I'll tell you what, lead us in prayer and we'll dive right into our text for this morning. Very well. Uh, let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we pray that you may bless our discussion of your holy word today, that in the word that you have given to us in the story of David and the mercy that you poured out upon him, upon his wives, and upon his people, we may see the mercy that you have poured out upon us, how you have delivered us from the hands of our enemies through the ministry, the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, David, as we know, is on the run, hiding from King Saul, David, the future and already anointed king of Israel. Uh, but how did we get here? Yesterday's text, he was in a sticky situation, had to, had to basically be put in the position of fighting against his own people, uh, but he was saved from that. Uh, tell us a little bit about where we were so we understand uh, how we get to David and his men coming home to Ziklag. Sure. So it, uh, this is all part of this bigger struggle against uh, Saul and his men, how uh, David has been uh, forced to essentially go to war with uh, the previous king of, uh, of Judah or the king of Israel, the undivided nation at this point. Um, so God has has taken the kingdom away from Saul, uh, but Saul is not willing to go quietly uh, into the night. So he goes to war with David. Uh, so David uh, finds himself in a position where he's having to flee to the Philistines, 
who you may remember the Philistines are famous, uh, probably most known in the Bible from uh, the time that David went out to war against their great warrior Goliath. Uh, and as a mere teenager, struck him dead with a rock from his sling, uh, cut off the giant's head, and boasted of the Lord's victory over them. So the Philistines have been a thorn in the Israelites' side for quite some time. Uh, and obviously, uh, strange political circumstances make for strange political bedfellows. So David has has found himself uh, in the position uh, where he's having to essentially lean on them for uh, some some measure of relief. And uh, finds himself uh, speaking with a man uh, named Akish, or Akish, however you might pronounce that, um, who is uh, who basically seeks uh, to provide for him and protect him while recognizing that the Philistines uh, don't want this guy uh, in their camp. So uh, the, chapter 29 ends, so David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up. To Jezreel. So that's basically the situation you, you find yourself in at this point. Right. So, you know, David is up against trying to, um, you know, he's fighting, I guess, under the banner of Achish, but he's fighting the other enemies of Achish, including the enemies of Israel. But he's being a little deceptive when he tells Achish that, you know, I'm fighting for you. So Achish didn't have any problem taking David and his men out with him to battle. But the, the elders or the other rulers of the Philistines said, no, send these guys away. And so Achish, he does. And so, um, as you said, the chapter 29 ends with verse 11. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel to do some fighting. So now we come to chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. And they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly displeased, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each one for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in Yahweh his God. Okay, we'll pause there at the end of verse 6. So yeah, so they while he was off, um, fighting for the Philistines, or at least being prepared to, the Amalekites, enemies of both the Philistines and the Israelites, make a raid on his compound. Yes. Um, so the, the Amalekites are, um, this is kind of one of the wild things about this era in history, is that you're just constantly surrounded by a variety of tribes that are varying degrees of, of hostile to you. Um, and and the, of course, the odd thing is they're always sort of distantly related to you. Um, so the, um, the Amalekites uh, are a group that shows up uh, a number of times uh, in the Old Testament. 
Uh, you'll find them in uh, in the stories that you'll find in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus, um, where they are uh, either going to war with the Israelites or, uh, for example, that there's a time in in Deuteron- Book of Deuteronomy chapter 25 when uh, they tried to stop the Israelites from marching through their territory. So uh, they, these are people likely descended from uh, Esau. Uh, and so they're dis- very distant cousins of the Israelites, but of course, by the time that they are interacting with each other, those uh, those family connections are so far gone that that they're uh, that they carry no sort of emotional significance for them. So yeah, the the Amalekites are are amongst the many uh, enemies of your enemies, but also your own enemies as well type of groups. Well, and we know the Amalekites from back uh, when, you know, Saul was given the duty by God to wipe out the Amalekites, and, and he and he doesn't. Uh, that's back in 15. He takes Agag, the king of Amalekites, and he takes him alive. Uh, he destruct, devotes to destruction all the other people. Certainly some have escaped. The king escaped. They, they continue to kind of uh, be reborn, and they continue to be a thorn in the side of the nations around them. But then David back in verse uh, 8 of chapter 27, he and his men are making raids against, among other people, the Amalekites. So this also very well could have been, I guess, a retaliatory raid, uh, especially as they come in and they don't kill all the women and children and people, but they carry them off. Now, is that unusual for them not to just, just kill them, to take them into, I suppose, slavery or some other form of servitude? Well, yeah, it's on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, no. Um, so it, in the ancient world, what you find with these tribes very often is they'll conquer a people and then anyone who's rather useful, uh, they will then take into slavery. So men who can work, uh, women who can bear children uh, to them that they can take as wives, um, things of that nature. So uh, but on the in the great grander scheme of things, the fact that they don't kill anyone uh, is is rather is rather surprising. Why do David's men blame him? Just because he's the leader, or has he done something that makes them think that he's more responsible than he is? Or maybe he is responsible. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of part of the heavy is the head that wears the crown type of thing, where uh, whenever you're in charge, people blame you for these things. Um, and as, as the text tells us there in verse chapter 6, because all the people were bitter in soul, uh, each for his sons and daughters. So um, it's a bit like... Uh, in the, you know the story of um, the uh, Korah's rebellion uh, during the days of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, when Korah uh, and some other men decide that Moses is taking on too much responsibility for himself, and so they go to him and complain about how he's made himself too great, and and Moses just sort of, uh, almost comically, just sort of says, "Oh, do you do you guys want more of the job that makes me wish I were dead all all of the time?" Uh, and well, too bad God didn't give that to you. Uh, and then there's this big rebellion where, um, or this God's response to the rebellion, where he opens up the ground and swallows a bunch of the men uh, who've taken part in the rebellion. And then all these other men who wanted to make themselves high priests, God sends out fire from the sanctuary that consumes them. And, and then the people all look at Moses and they look at him and they go, why did you do that? As as though Moses could have possibly caused these things to happen, so that's something that you see very frequently 
in uh, in the Old Testament, especially for anyone in a position of, of power and strength. So David is trying to work his way through these kind of impossible scenarios. Um, and the people just simply blame him for the fact that this great evil thing has happened because they're embittered in their souls. They just want to go home. They want to be at peace. David remains the guy who's in charge. And so uh, so they grumble against him. Uh, they grow uh, they grow in anger against him because of this uh, wretched thing that's happened. I also find interesting that this isn't the first time that this expression has been used for these people way back uh, when they first came to David. Now, not maybe the specific people, but um, we see way back in chapter 22, verse 2, um, that it says everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him that is gathered to David. You know, the people are fleeing uh, Saul's kingdom to kind of be, I guess, patriots or or uh, whatever they want to call themselves, a little militia for David. And one of the descriptors are all the people who are discontented, bitter in soul. So these same people are discontented, bitter in soul, but this time for their sons and daughters, you know, they fled Saul's reign because of their discontentment. And as you just pointed out, now that they're discontent again, and for very good reason, um, they uh, they turn on the one who's in charge. Uh, it shows a little bit of fickleness too, which I think certainly is something that we can relate to in our relationship with with Christ and God. Because you know, how often do are we ready to praise God for all the good things that happen, uh, and then when, for whatever in His divine wisdom, He allows bad things to befall us, we often respond with anger toward Him. Yeah, it's you know the interesting thing there at the at the end of verse uh, six. Uh, so all the people, they're bitter in their souls, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. So the reason David is able to find strength is because he puts his trust in, not in himself, uh, but in his Lord. And you know, one of the strange things about the, the reasons we're oftentimes driven to despair is because we spend all day trusting in ourselves. And then when our strength fails, we look at God and we say, how could you let this happen to us? But, re- but we, we find the truth and we know the, the wisdom of God when we despair of our own righteousness and then trust in him and recognize that uh, the only way through this valley of sorrows, the only way to conquer sin, death, and the devil, the only way to be lifted up out of the pit of our own digging uh, is through the mercy of Jesus Christ. David is distressed too, of course. His own uh, wives have been taken. He certainly laments over what has happened. Now his own followers are, um, you know, fickle in their loyalty. I, I tell you, you know, if this were Saul, who knows what his response would be? But as you pointed out, David turns to Yahweh, um, and I think certainly an, an example for us too. We're going to read a few more verses. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech. Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of Yahweh, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. So David, 
He strengthens himself in Yahweh, his God, but it's not just a sort of, Lord, make me feel better. He seeks out God's will in the means by which God has given him, and in this time, it's the priest and the ephod. Yeah, so yeah, the ephod is the basically the priestly vestment. It's the shirt, essentially, that, uh, that the priests are to wear. Uh, so David here is, it's not just a matter, as you say, it's just not, not just a matter of David asking for comfort, but it's also David saying, what specifically do I actually do here? Because there, I think in particular, the, the fear that you're having here with this question, shall I pursue after this band, shall I overtake them, is uh, we, we still kind of have this today, you know, where... Um, you know, if, if someone has committed some crime, if someone has kidnapped um, someone, for example, kidnapped a child, there's sort of the fear of, you know, if, if the police are pursuing, will the person uh, recognizing that his his time is numbered engage in some act of violence? You know, will he kill the person that he's kidnapped uh, just simply to bring about as much destruction as he can before the end? So, uh, so that's the, the question here is, is how do I, how do I approach this? Uh, and David asks a very specific an- question and he gets a very specific answer from the Lord pursue for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So the, it really is, this is a stark contrast here between what we see with Saul, where uh, a major part of Saul's problem and the, uh, the great reason for why Saul has the kingdom taken away from him is because Saul refuses to inquire of the Lord and simply trusts in his own wisdom to take the gifts of God uh, and to use them for his own, for his own purposes. Uh, whereas David is very conscious and conscientious about um, about ensuring that he's not flying off the handle and that he's not just saying, okay, God has given me the power to do X, I'm therefore going to do X. But ultimately, it's the question of what what should I do? What should I trust in? And so God gives him this word of comfort, go pursue after your uh, your wife, go pursue after the, those who have been taken, your wives, go pursue those who've been taken, uh, and you'll receive them back safely. Well, and certainly there were men around him who had lost or I guess had taken from them wives and children, people even whom David might have trusted. And they're probably saying, what do you mean asking? Let's just go. Of course, it's obvious what we should do. But because he inquired of the Lord, even from what seems to be kind of an obvious response, now I guess he's going forth with that confidence that he receives from the word of God, that he's going to be victorious. Um, the, the, the ephod or the, however they discern the Lord's will were, were typically yes or no questions. Uh, I would assume they would have probably have asked a several questions to come to the conclusion that they came. Um, I, I, when I see this, like, you know, well, God said, and we have like this quotation, um, right. that's probably not exactly how that's more of a summary of what they've concluded right. from their seeking his will. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Um, so this is kind of the, the issue is that God will speak through his appointed voices, through the voice of the priests, through the voices of the prophets. Uh, so very often the scriptures will give us the answer that you got, but they don't always, the scriptures don't always do the math of, of how you got the answer. Uh, for example, you, you find this with the patriarchs where uh, when uh, Rebecca is uh, pregnant with twins and they're striving within her womb, Jacob and Esau are, are striving within her womb, she goes to inquire of the Lord about this. Uh, and Martin Luther, in his commentary on that, notes that he does the math and sees that uh, Shem uh, is still alive. 
And uh, so Luther is, uh, shares the opinion that Shem is Melchizedek, that they're the same. This is the same person, just another name given to him. But ultimately, that that Shem, being the righteous uh, son of Noah, still alive, is ultimately God's priest uh, on earth at this point. The, the priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, so that uh, Rebecca going to inquire of the Lord is not Rebecca just simply walking out into the woods and asking God questions and hearing the voice of God respond, but rather she goes to the one through whom God has has chosen to speak, goes through uh, basically what we would say today, you know, the official channels. So that, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a mystery here. As I say, we don't quite get the math of how David gets this answer, but the important thing ultimately in the end is David is going through the proper priestly channels and then receives the answer. Well, then they take off confident in God's word. They head off into the open country. Let's read what happens next. Starting with verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Carathites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Okay, so <laughs> uh, David and them find, um, I guess, a wandering soldier or servant of uh, the uh, Amalekites, and they ask him to basically turn state's evidence, <laughs> point right. us to where your where your guys are, and we'll spare you. Um, interesting little interlude. Interesting how God is using this guy who was abandoned by the people he was serving just because he was sick or weak, um, but now. You know, he's encountered the mercy of David, and of course, he'll be used to find the Amalekites. Yeah, there's an interesting juxtaposition here of how David responds to those who are uh, sick and needy and how the, uh, the Amalekites do. So on the one hand, they actually end up doing the same thing, which is leaving people behind. So David has 200 men. Uh, that stay behind, uh, who are too exhausted to go into war with him. But of course, the reason David leaves them behind is because he doesn't want them to die. He doesn't. He doesn't want. Uh, he he doesn't see them as a burden, and wants them to recapture their strength uh, and keep their lives. Whereas the Amalekites have the here. You have a slave who uh, has grown sick and is there, and therefore no longer. Uh, useful uh, to their kings, so so they leave him for dead, and so here here we see David showing his his true heart of mercy that that he's the one who leaves his men behind not because they're worthless but because they are treasured to him and they're valuable to God, and then he comes across a man who has been cast aside uh, by his godless people, and David shows him the mercy of his God by restoring him and reviving him and and not, and as you say inviting him to turn state's evidence but but ultimately uh, this man who has been left aside and been 
thrown away, who has no one and who has no family. David is ultimately inviting him into the family of God here uh, by inviting him to take part in their in their battle against the unrighteous. Well, we're going to hear more about this and what happens next when we come back from a break. So folks, don't go anywhere. We'll keep on going through 1 Samuel when we see you on the other side. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church free of charge to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Hans Feeney, pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. I'm so glad that you're with us today. I hope our study is blessing you. Remember, you can catch us on the air or online or live or on demand at kfuo.org or through your favorite podcasting platform or through KFUO's own app. Lots of ways to have KFUO's enriching content brought right to you any way you want. So, Pastor, before the break, we were just getting into this whole section where, you know, they're running into this abandoned slave in the middle of the, the desert and the way as they're chasing after this band of Amalekites that have destroyed Ziklag and carried off their relatives and wives and children. Um, so he is experiencing the mercy of David. Um, they're going to use him to find uh, where to go next. Anything else you want us to know from this section before we read on? Well, there there is just something obviously important to understand about this, that it's by the hand of the one who is cast aside and left for dead uh, that the Amalekites end up being destroyed. Uh, so he he's the one who gives obviously the critical information as to where they're located, which enables David to uh, to gain the victory over them. And so um, there, this is kind of part of an overarching theme that we see in the scriptures that those who cast aside, those who are cast aside, uh, are the ones who are embraced by God. Those who are thrown away by the world are those who are welcomed into the arms of God and given positions of of honor and glory. So, uh, so be very careful about uh, those whom you throw away, uh, because our Lord may, very well may raise them up to be the instruments of your destruction. It's kind of a, the general theme here. And this is a tiny, tiny little point that doesn't really affect the uh, the understanding of the text, but the. Egyptian says, he says in the very last verse of our section here, 15, uh, swear to me by God that you will not kill me, kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I'll take you down. That word there, Elohim, this guy doesn't know about Yahweh. He's probably saying 
by the gods, by his own gods, wouldn't you say? Well, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's kind of the question. There is is the question is swear to me by your God, perhaps that uh, that, he's, that he's getting at here, um, so that he doesn't quite know what he's gotten into here, um, but that he's asking uh, for faithfulness. You know that there, it's kind of similar to the uh, the man who's born blind when he's being interrogated by uh, by the Pharisees and by the uh, leaders of the temple. Where they're saying to him, "Well, uh, well, who who is this man that you know that, that cast that, that gave you back your sight, or or how could you possibly say that he's a righteous man?" And the guy goes, uh, "Look, guys, I don't know what to tell you, but I am just telling you that's the guy who opened my eyes. So <laughs> you you figure it out." So there, I think there's something there's a little bit of a similarity there. Interesting. Well, let's read on. I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. And when they had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and all the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. So David apparently comes down. The, the, the force is much larger than David's force. David's David, 400 people. Uh, 400 alone escape on camels. Right. Uh, so whoever was left, David and, of course, his men, they strike down them all night long. And, and then he gets everything back. Yeah, it's a common thing that, that we see, obviously something that David sees in his own life, that being outnumbered uh, is not something to fear when you have the Lord on your side, just in, in the same way that when when you're just a teenage kid and you're going up against uh, however tall he is, eight foot, nine foot, uh, massive giant, and you can't even fit into armor that you have nothing to fear for it's the Lord who brings about the victory. Uh, and, and this is something that we see all throughout the scriptures is, is uh, companies of, of warriors of, of faithful warriors who are much smaller in number, uh, gaining the victory against those, uh, against the enemies of God. So David is essentially looks like a sneak attack comes upon them, uh, in the evening. Uh, and then either the battle is raging until the evening of the next day, or, that's basically how long David takes uh, slaughtering the enemies. Uh, so there, and there are 400 uh, who flee. So that there's obviously a strong parallel between that and the number of men that, that David has. So that their victory is so great that, uh, that, that this smaller percentage of the Amalekites that survives is as great as the, armies of, as the army of David himself. Yeah, I think that's a, a certainly an ironic mention on purpose, even to let us know that you know, four only four hundred of them escaped, and David only had four hundred completely exhausted and worn out Israelites uh, to lead against them in the first place. So yeah, that's a it's it's an amazing testimony, and and I like what you said. You know, it, when you're out when you're outnumbered, at least the way you see in earthly manners, you you really never are if God is on your side. That's how David's whole whole narrative begins his whole life continues to show but but again we're not david but when we uh live our lives according to the will of god then god is 
on our side too. And when that will, the things that we believe, teach, and confess are up against what it seems to be the whole rest of the world, and it just seems like everybody's against us, um, we are not outnumbered because the Lord is on our side. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's, uh, there's again, there, what you see, you see this a lot in the Old Testament, especially. Um, you f- you'll find this in uh, the book of Judges, uh, where if you rem- remember when Gideon is going out to war and God keeps having him send men home because he's basically saying, well, I want to, I really want to highlight that I'm the one uh, granting the victory here. So we're going to cut your, your soldiers down, or we're going to whittle that number of soldiers down to such an, ex- such as an extent that no one will know that, uh, that God was, was on your side so that you're so greatly outnumbered, uh, that, that it can't be any, any explanation other than that you had uh, the will of God on your side. Absolutely. And so uh, let's, um, let's keep on going. So then David came, this is verse 21, to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Yahweh has given us. Uh, He has preserved us and have given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Um, You know, the Bible describes these guys as worthless fellows, wicked men. But I don't know. Sounds pretty straightforward to me. You didn't go. You you don't get a a cut of the spoils. Uh, How do we understand this? Again, from our human point of view, it seems fairly reasonable. Yeah, so there's something I think that's pretty similar here to the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, uh, which Jesus gives us. And so when it comes to, the, so that's the parable where uh, a bunch of men start off working in a vineyard at the beginning of the day, and then the guys who come in at the last minute, so the master of the vineyard keeps going out and hiring people throughout the day. And they get angry when the people who came in and were only there for the last hour get paid the same amount that they got paid. And then they're asked this great question, do you begrudge my generosity? Now, my contention with that parable is, so, so the parables are, are really illustrations of some aspect of salvation. The parables either will describe how salvation works, why it happens, um, how salvation is received. One of, the th- um, one of the things that I will say is there's this kind of this category of the parables of how salvation is perceived by the unrighteous, so what it looks like to the unrighteous. And, that, and my contention is that the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, is that's the point of the parable, is that it's not God saying to us, the way salvation works is you obey God as much as you can, and those who have a little obedience will get the same reward as those who have... Uh, great obedience. So if you've been a Christian your whole life, then uh, you do a lifetime of labor. But if people repent at the last second and come on in, as long as they did a little something, they're worthy of salvation. That's really not what the parable is getting at, but it's rather that that's how salvation, that's what's the, what Christian salvation looks like to the unbeliever, where he says, I've been working here in the hot sun all day, and you're going to make me equal to these guys who haven't done anything. 
And they don't realize that that the kingdom of God is actually God giving you everything for free. God is pouring out his grace and mercy upon those who've done nothing to earn it. Uh, that, that That's what it means to be saved by grace. And there's something similar with the men here where what makes them wicked and worthless is that they can't see the thing that should be obvious to them, which we just talked about with the numbers. So the, so the only survivors of their war against the Amalekites were 400 who ran away, and there were only 400 of them. So they don't have any right to boast because God brought about the victory. They would have been slaughtered immediately on the battlefield if God hadn't been for them. But because God was for them and because God had called them out to this task, then they can't take any credit for this. And this is what David is ultimately trying to get them to see. So uh, as, as he says here, he, that is God, has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us, who would listen to you in this matter. So in other words, you, you guys think that that these men here who were resting and, and, and I, that I was preventing from dying, you think that they're not worthy of the spoil, neither are you. But God chose right. to use you to bring about his victory. And on account of that, you have no more right to the to the spoil that God has given that these men do. So who, why would anyone even listen to you and your cries of how it's unjust to give men who equally are who are equally as unresponsible for this miracle as you are? No, I think that makes a, a lot of sense, of course, because, you know, it's interesting that David is sure to remind the people through these actions that God was the one who won the day. Yahweh is—the spoil really belongs to Yahweh, right? So we have to, to use a little bit of a modern cliche, right? We have to decide what we want to use out of uh, his gifts that he's given us, not how much we want to give back, that sort of idea. Uh, but it also makes it really, I guess, stand out. His actions stand out in light of what we see in verse 20, what the people were saying. It says, David captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him. And the people were saying, this is David's spoil. Right. Um, which is makes sense. He's the king. You know, he wasn't the only one fighting, but it also said David struck them down from twilight till the evening. So it wasn't just David out there. The men were just sitting around. They were all fighting. So it's we get that. It's not it's not a, a sin to say that, right? It's it's appropriate. But David reminds the the men themselves that not only is it not his spoil, but rather it's not even their spoil. It's what God has given them and and given all of them. Uh, and I think your explanation of that makes beautiful sense. And it, and it's of course explained even further as we see what happens next in verse twenty six. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying. Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of Yahweh. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Aror, oh, that's hard to say, in Sifmoth, in Eshtoima, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites. I should have looked this up first. Jeremelites, and in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Atak, in Hebron for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Okay, well, despite my butchering of the Hebrew city names, <laughs> he, he sends um, little tributes, for lack of a better word, to all these different places where they had roamed. And I am assuming, brother, that part of the intentions behind that is out of gratitude for 
I guess, preserving his men. They could have any of these places, the places that belong to uh, Judah anyway, could have uh, turned them over to Saul at any point. So he's rewarding his friends. Yeah, absolutely. That there's a kind of and, and also too a sense in which David is saying, well, this spoil belongs to you because you participated in, in my victory. That um, and that I think this is an important thing for for Christians to realize is that there are there are many kinds of of, uh, of participating in God's kingdom, many kinds of ways of, of fighting spiritual warfare and of putting on the armor of God, and not all of them involve going into actual battle. Not all of them. In uh, so just because you're not necessarily front and center in the same way, that doesn't mean that you're not contributing. Uh, to to God's victory, so so for David and his men, they're warriors. That's the vocation they've been given, and God requires them and expects them to go to war. But for those who were not in that same position, God called them to be servants, to be those who are giving a cold cup of water to those who are thirsty, to be a place of refuge and a place of peace. So in, in the same way, you, you see this in, in the life of the church, right? That that pastors, for example are the ones who are in this kind of the sense of spiritual warfare called to be on the battlefield. We're the ones uh, rebuking false doctrine. We're the ones standing up against uh, injustice and wickedness in the world uh, and oftentimes making ourselves much more visible in that sense. Um, and not everyone is, is put into that same position, uh, but everyone has a responsibility to be supportive of those who are in those, in those kind of more uh, sweat inducing, uh, vocations. So, uh, so, so for those of you who are uh, Christians who are seeking to support your pastors, who pray for your pastors, who show kindness to them, who invite them over for dinner and tell them how much, uh, that you appreciate their sermons and how, and how aware you are of the, of the good and great things that God is doing through them, uh, that you too are sharers in the spoil, that the gifts of God that are poured out upon his people don't just simply belong to those who are called to preach the word and administer the sacraments, but they're given to all of the people and those who receive the gifts as well and who receive them in joy and who, who carry out their vocations by receiving those gifts in joy. I read a connection that somebody made about um, David preparing for the future. And I think the author of this takes it a little too far, but they said that David always is politically sensitive. And if you notice the towns in Southern Judah, um, in the general area of Hebron or Hebron, uh, David later in second Samuel is crowned King of Hebron because of these affiliations and relationships. And so they're connecting this to Jesus's words in Luke 16, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I think it's a bit of a stretch. I think it's more about them seeing him being the anointed of the Lord, and that's why they were eager to be on his side once King Saul dies. But my point is, um, do we do we see here any parallels between this idea of of using things like spoils of war and money to, uh, to help others in terms of— uh, being kind of a, I guess, a, a politically expedient thing for David to do is—is is, is that in his mind? Yeah, at I mean, all? I, th I think you can say that there's certainly uh, that's a result of it. You know, wh whether or not David has this in mind when he's doing it uh, is, I suppose, another question that we can't really know the answer to. Sure. But there, there is, of course, a political nature to these things, and and there's also just the the human recognition and the understanding on a on a human level of 
when you show mercy to people and you show kindness to people, they are inclined to return mercy and kindness. Uh, and so while, while there are many times, uh, obviously in the scriptures, when David is, is profoundly harsh and, pour, and, and God uses him to pour out his wrath upon those who, who have lived unrighteously. We see this, for example, when he puts to death the guy who basically mercy killed King Saul uh, because the man was not called to, uh, to, to, extend, to reach out his hand against the Lord's anointed. Uh, so despite the fact that Paul, that Saul was living in wickedness, Saul nevertheless had been the anointed one of God. Uh, and God is the only one who is to take the life away from the one that he's anointed. And you, so you see something, uh, you see kind of the reverse of that here where David pours out mercy upon people and they know that he's the king of mercy. They, so, so if your options are to side with someone that you think is, is likely to destroy you at the drop of a hat, if you cease to remain in his good graces, or if you annoy him or irritate him, if your options are that guy, uh, or the one who has shown himself to be kind and merciful, you deepen in strength and political bonds because, because uh, what you're doing is, is beyond politics. It's beyond political realities or temporal realities is you're, you're building, uh, faith and trust, uh, in a common salvation. And when we're united around that, there's a far greater sense of loyalty that people have to each other. So certainly he's recognizing this whole range of, you know, his friends and neighbors, associates, people he, that have helped him out along the way. You know, they're sympathizer, they're potential supporters, too. It's, it kind of all works together. I, and I agree. I don't think David is sitting there going, well, you know, when King Saul dies, I'm going to need to establish for now. I, I, I think that he's um, following the will of the Lord, as we've already explained, how this is a, a great symbol of how the gifts of God are given freely and even to those who we might not think deserve it. Um, and then, of course, that does come to benefit David later. When we follow the will and ways of God, even if we might meet resistance from people around us, um, things will tend to go better. That doesn't mean we won't face persecution. doesn't mean that the world will make it easy on us. But God has given us his will and the way that we should behave and live our lives for a reason, because that's the that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, we're, we're, we're getting close to the, we're actually we're at the end of the chapter and uh, getting close to the end of First Samuel. Uh, anything else about what we've read today that you want people to take home or any other message you want them to have as we wrap up the show today? Well, I think in the end, it's really the kind of overarching message of the chapter is trust in God, trust in his in his provision and his love and in his promises. And then when his, uh, when his mercy and his deliverance happens, remember that it came from his hand and don't seek to claim it for yourself. So, uh, so be a Christian in your times of need. Uh, don't trust in yourself to solve your problems, but seek wisdom and guidance from the Lord. Trust in his word. Uh, carry out what it is that his word has commanded you. And when that, where and when that brings you success, trust not in yourself, but rather trust in the promises of the God through whom every good gift is given. Well, folks, I would like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Hans Feeney, pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Crestwood, Missouri. Brother, thanks for being on the show as always. Glad to be here. On Monday, when we come back together, we will once again open our Bibles to 1 Samuel, this time chapter 31. In this final chapter of 1 Samuel, 
King Saul's reign comes to an end in a fairly ignoble way, but it also fulfills prophecy. Saul and his army face the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, but they are defeated and flee. The Philistines pursue them and kill Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. Saul himself is critically wounded by the Philistine archers, and he asks his armor bearer to kill him, but he refuses. So Saul takes his own sword and falls on it. His armor bearer follows his example and dies with him. And the next day, the Philistines find their bodies and cut off Saul's head. What a dramatic end to what has been a fantastic book. And then on Wednesday, we're going to keep on going with 2 Samuel chapter 1. And we'll hear about David and his rise to the uh, to the throne and how he not only displays a wonderfully different approach to reigning, but he also has plenty of faults of his own that mar his legacy and reminds us that he might point to the Christ, but he is not the Christ. Folks, until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. 